Scripture reading today comes from Romans chapter 3. I want to encourage you to read along on the screen with me, or you might just close your eyes and receive God's word this morning. Church of God, this is the word of God. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. God, thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to receive it now, apply it, do it, not just hear it. Holy Spirit, work in our midst today to give us the truths that we need to apply, to apply into our lives. We desire that. If you desire that, church, say amen with me. Amen. Let's go ahead and take our Bibles together and turn to that passage, Romans chapter 3. It's, it's a complex text. If I was a little distracted this morning when we were conversing, just know that I've been studying this all week, and I was afraid if I got in the wrong conversation this morning, everything would just kind of spill out of my head. <laughs> there's a lot going on, and I, I can understand, maybe even as I read that, there's some confusion over what's the question, what's the issue that Paul's addressing. To help you with that, I found a really nice paraphrase of this passage that I want to read for you. It's it's, it's a good summary of what's going on here with Paul and his argumentation. So basically what's going on here is you have a Q&A session between Paul and an imaginary debater. So here's the paraphrase. The debater says something like this. Paul, are you saying there's no advantage to biblical religion? Paul says, no, I'm not saying that. There is great value in having and knowing the words of God. The debater then asks another question. Yes, but those words have failed, haven't they? Because so many haven't believed the gospel of righteousness revealed in God's Son, Jesus. What has happened to the promises? Paul says, despite his people's failure to believe, God's promises to save are advancing. Our faithlessness only reveals how committed to his truth God is. Think of what he's done in order to bring his faithfulness to his promises. The debater says, well then, if me sinning makes God look better, that means I should sin more, right? Shouldn't I? So that his glory is more clearly seen. Paul says, I've been accused of thinking like this in the past, and I certainly don't think like that. And saying you're sinning so that God will love you more is an attitude that is absolutely worthy of judgment. Hopefully that's a clarifying paraphrase 
for you, clarifying what Paul is saying in chapter 3. I actually think that that paraphrase I just read is, is kinder and more courteous than Paul's actually being in this passage. That's the shortcomings of a paraphrase, though, obviously. What Paul is doing ultimately in this passage is he's defeating bad arguments. He's defeating bad arguments. And, you know, one of the things that you're going to have to do in this world is similarly identify bad ideas, bad arguments, and defeat them. For example, the idea circulates in our day right now that humans, humans should be able to have sex with whomever they want to, regardless of marital status or whatever. That's a bad argument. That leads to immorality. That leads to even negative consequences in our world. You need to be able to address that as a Christian and defeat that argument. Also, just another example, there's an idea that circulates in our day that humans, us, we human beings are just purely physical beings, just highly evolved apes with bigger brains. Therefore, our only concern should be the here and now in this present world. There's nothing beyond that. There's no metaphysical reality beyond that. So we should just, you know, do whatever satisfies us, do whatever makes us happy. That's a bad argument. That's a bad argument. And as Christians, we need to be able to address those bad ideas, those bad arguments, and counter them with the truth. And to all that, you might say, hmm, Pastor Tony, if only there was a place in the Bible where, where Paul demonstrates that. If only there's this place where, I don't know, this human author is inspired by the Holy Spirit and addresses bad arguments and shows us how to to deal with bad ideas, bad thinking. Well, there is such a place. Romans 3. This is that place where Paul addresses rhetorically some bad questions, some objections to his doctrine. And you know what? I I don't think this is strictly hypothetical or stuff that just came up to, to Paul in his mind You know, if you remember in the book of Acts, Paul's going from synagogue to synagogue all throughout the Roman Empire, and I'm sure he had real conversations like this. I'm sure these were real objections that people had. And so Paul has learned in his process of evangelism, he's learned how to address these arguments, he's learned the questions that people are asking, and he's going to write this down right now in Romans 3 so that we have access to what he's learned. Paul's going to use a style of argumentation here called a diatribe, I've talked about this already. Paul goes back to the diatribe here. It's, a diatribe is, is an imaginary debate with yourself, okay, in order to make a point. It's actually a very effective way to argue your point. And I heard a commentator this last week that said that Romans 3, 1 through 8, this is like listening to Paul the apostle argue with Paul the Pharisee before he was converted. You might say Saul the Pharisee. So this is like watching a debate between Paul and Saul. I don't know about you, but if if that debate was taking place at the Decatur Civic Center this week, I'd go watch that debate. That would be awesome to see them debate this kind of thing. And I mean, that would be fascinating, much more fascinating than the debates on TV right now. That's all I'll say about that. Let's watch Paul and Saul debate. This is good, church. And what I want to give you, here's your outline for this morning. You can take your notes and write these down. I'm going to give you four bad arguments that Paul dismantles in Romans 3. Okay? Four bad arguments that Saul the Pharisee puts forth and that Paul the Apostle refutes. Okay? Here's the first one. 
First bad argument. It's, it's as if Saul, the Pharisee, says, okay, Paul, if you're right about the gospel in Romans 1 and 2, if you're right that both Jews and Gentiles stand before God condemned, then, then what benefit is there in being a Jew? What benefit is there in having the law in the first place? If the gospel is true, then there's no benefit in being a Jew. That's the bad argument. Okay, If the gospel is true, there's no benefit in being a Jew. And we might think in light of chapter 2 and all the things that we've looked at already in this book that Paul's going to say, yeah, you got it, Saul. You finally have figured out what I'm trying to tell you. There's no difference. But that's not what Paul says. Because, yeah, Paul has said that Jews and Gentiles alike, God shows no partiality, alike stand condemned before God, but he has never said, and he doesn't believe that there's no advantage in being a Jew. There is an advantage. What advantage is there? Look at verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, says Paul, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So what advantages do the Jews have? Paul says they got lots of advantages. They got lots of advantages. I'll give you an example of some of those or, or show you where he talks about this more in Romans 9, 4 through 5. Paul lists those advantages. You can read these on the screen. He says, to the Israelites belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, is the Christ, who is God over all. If you got nothing else, you got that. That's an advantage. Blessed forever is this Christ, who is God over all. Amen. Paul doesn't mention all of that here in chapter 3, but he could have. He could have said that. The only thing that he mentions as an advantage is what? The oracles of God. What are the oracles? Those are the scriptures. Those are the scriptures. There is an advantage to being Jews historically because you've had the scriptures. You've had the truths of God. Yeah, you've had the law and that has condemned you, but, but as part of that law, as part of the Old Testament, you've also had the oracles. Now that word oracles, that refers to the promises of the Old Testament. Yeah, the Old Testament included the law. Yeah, the Old Testament included those judgments, too, for not following the law and the covenants. But the Old Testament also had the prophets. The Old Testament also had the messianic promises. The Old Testament also recorded, and this is right after Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, the Old Testament also records the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, the first mention of the good news in Genesis 3, 15. God says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman in between your seed and her seed. He, the seed of the woman, i.e. Jesus, we know, shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So early on in the Old Testament, there were the oracles. There were the promises that someone, someone great would come. A, a seed of, of Adam and Eve would come and would, would destroy the work of Satan and save mankind. And pa Paul says, you had that from the very begin beginning. Paul isn't saying that that promise only applies to you as a Jew. It didn't. It applied to the Gentiles too. This promise of salvation, this seed, this Messiah. God told Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed. So not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. But the Gentiles, 
the Jews had an advantage over the Gentiles because they had these promises in their keeping from the beginning. They had the Old Testament. They had the Word of God. When my ancestors were pagan idolaters naked in the woods of Britain, the Jews had the Scriptures. They had the oracles of God. Sure, the Greeks had Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, yeah. But they didn't have the oracles of God. Not like the Jews. I would say this is a parallel in our day. Some of you might say, well, how does this apply to us, Pastor Tony, in 2019? You might also say, Pastor, Pastor Tony, it's hard to be a Christian in America today. There's so much pressure on us to conform to the world. There's so much pressure on us to to kowtow to the LGBT community or to marginalize my faith to the point that it means nothing. I feel this pressure, Pastor Tony. I get it. I, I feel that too. I felt it, honestly, 25 years ago when I was a teenager in Austin, Texas. Here's my counter to that. We have the scriptures. We have the oracles of God, if you want to say it that way. We know how this story's going to end. It might be hard to be a Christian now. It's going to be a lot easier, easier in eternity when we're in the presence of the Lord. So, you know, and even in our country, historically, we've had religious liberty. Some countries don't have that. Praise God for that. Who knows how long that will last, but for now we have it. We got up this morning and we came to church. We didn't get harassed by anyone on our way to church except maybe your dog on the way out the door. We came here, we have freedom of assembly, freedom of religion. The reason I'm talking about this is because I think we all are tempted from time to time. If, if only I'd lived in a different time and it was, you know, easier to be a Christian, like in the 1900s. You know, Alistair likes to say that Sonny and I, we grew, we grew up in the late 1900s, you know. <laughs> I like to call that the 80s and the 90s. So we might wistfully long for those days when it was easier to be a Christian, or we might wistfully desire on the other side of the, the equation to, to go to some country where having faith in Christ could get you killed. That's where real faith takes place. Here's the point. Here's the point. God has put you here, right here in Decatur, Illinois, 2019 for his sovereignly ordained purpose. Embrace it. Live for him. Serve him. Worship him. Follow him. And, by the, and, and obey the oracles of God that he's given you. Do you know, by the way, do you know what a rarity it is that you have this written word in your hands right now throughout human history? Do you know what a rarity that is? Some of you, like me, have several of copies of this on your bookshelf at home. What a great world that we live in. We have the oracles of God. So let's not be, you know, woe is me, we live in a tough day, Christian. Let's embrace where God has put us. Let's be thankful where we are. And let's serve him and worship him. Amen, church? Let's go back to the debate that Paul's having with himself, because this gets interesting now. In verse 3, here's the second bad argument that Paul addresses. Saul the Pharisee says, okay, Paul, if the gospel is true, then Jewish faithlessness cancels out God's faithfulness. That's the second bad argument. Here it is in verse 3. What if some are unfaithful? Some of these Jews that had the scriptures. You said, Paul, that the Jews had an advantage. They had the oracles of God, the promises of God, but not all of them were faithful. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Everybody tracking with the argument here? 
does, does, their, does the Jewish faithlessness cancel out God's faithfulness? I think what Saul the Pharisee is objecting to here is the idea that God has changed the equation on the Jewish people. Now, Gentiles are allowed to come into the family of God. Does that mean that God has been unfaithful to the Jews? Did God break his covenant with them? Some of you might remember the, the covenant that God made with Abraham in the Old Testament. In Genesis 15, there's this covenant ceremony that God had initiated with Abraham. And, and God told Abraham to cut animals in half and put the bodies of those animals in different places, set apart. And then there was like a, like a walkway between these two parts of the animal's body. It was like a, like a bloody red carpet. And so Abraham did that, and then Abraham went to sleep, and then God appeared in the form of a flaming torch, and he walked that bloody red carpet between those animals. It's, it's symbolism. I know for us it's kind of like, what in the world is going on in Genesis 15? It's symbolism. And what God was signifying there was that if I fail this covenant with you, may what happened to these animals happen to me. That's what's being symbolized there. May what happen, that's, that's how serious God took that promise of covenant that he made with Abraham. And even though Paul doesn't say it directly here, the question here deals with Old Testament covenant ideas. You know, does the faithlessness of the Israelites nullify God's faithfulness? So many Israelites have failed in the Old Testament to fulfill the covenant. If you don't believe that, just read the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Failure, failure, failure. So many Israelites of the Old Testament failed to fulfill the covenant. And in Paul's day, many Jews in the New Testament era were rejecting Jesus as Messiah, the Messiah that was first in the Old Testament. Does their faithlessness nullify God's faithfulness? Look at what Paul says in verse 8. This is the strongest possible way to negate something. This in Greek, it means absolutely not. By no means, says Paul, has God's faithfulness been nullified. Not on your life, you might say. There's a way to translate that. Man's faithlessness nullifying God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. In the South, we might say, uh, uh, uh. It's the opposite of mm hmm. Not mm hmm, but uh uh. By no means does this nullify God's faithfulness. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Whew. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. God is true to his promises even when man fails him. Is that true? God is faithful to his promises even when man fails him. True or false? Absolutely, it's true. Let God be true and every man a liar. By the way, that as it is written in verse 4, that's a statement referencing the Old Testament. As it is written in the Old Testament, and it's a reference to Psalm 51 in the Old Testament. Do you know what, you know what Psalm 51 is about? Do you remember Psalm 51? Psalm 51 is about a king, a great king in Israel, the greatest king who ever ruled over ancient Israel. And that great king who was described as a man after God's own heart, he saw a woman who was not his wife bathing from the rooftop of his palace. So he called her to his palace and he had sex with her. Powerful man, impressionable woman, 
he impregnated her. And if that wasn't enough, he conspired to murder her husband so that he could marry her and cover over his sin. Who are we talking about here? It's King David. King David. And and the woman was Bathsheba, who became the mother of the next king of Israel, Solomon. David did that wicked thing. The man whom God said, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your Your throne shall be established forever. That's the Davidic covenant. God made a covenant with David. Your throne will be established forever. He did that sin. You know, it's interesting in Matthew chapter 1 in Jesus' genealogy when Bathsheba is referenced, it it says there, Matthew says of her that she was Uriah's husband. So, you know, she's not even, even though she was David's husband later, she was called in Matthew 1 Uriah's husband. So David's sins are publicized in the New Testament for the rest of the world. How's that for a legacy? How's that for a legacy? Here's the point. Does David's faithlessness nullify God's faithfulness? No, it does not. Absolutely not. And David even knew that in Psalm 51. Here's what David writes. He says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David knew even before Paul knew that man's sinfulness doesn't nullify God's faithfulness. There's actually an argument that can be made that man's sinfulness accentuates God's faithfulness. Man is sinful. God is holy. Man is unrighteous. God is righteous. In bold relief, we see that. Man Man is sinful, unstoppably sinful, not without God. And so God in his sinless state looks beautiful before man. Man's unfaithfulness accentuates God's faithfulness. By the way, that, the contrast right there, that's why God had to become a man to save us because we couldn't save ourselves because there's no perfect man outside of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, right? We needed that. David knew even before Paul that man's sinfulness doesn't nullify God's faithfulness. And to this you might say, okay, well, how is this practical for me, Pastor Tony? How does this relate to us here in the 21st century? The faithlessness of David and the Jews, what does that have to do with me? Here's how it relates, okay? Let me get, I say this with a heavy heart. I have been, I have been heartbroken the last few weeks over the news of John Christ and his failure as a follower of Christ. If you don't know John Christ, Christian comedian, pastor's kid. I did some horrible things. I've been heartbroken this last year over the news of Joshua Harris, somebody that I respected, who apostatized his apostasy from the faith. It's heartbreaking. I've been heartbroken for the last few years over the failure of church leaders and churches who have victimized young children in their churches. Maybe you've all heard about that recently, the Southern Baptist Convention and their report. Maybe you've heard about that the last few decades and what's happened in the Catholic Church. This is the church. This is the body of Christ. This is the bride of Christ. I've given my life to serving the church. And there are people in our world who have victimized children in the church. 
It makes me furious. It makes me sad. To be honest, I'm 41. I have been repeatedly throughout my life heartbroken by the actions of Christians over and over and over again throughout my life. And we repeatedly, as Christians, as the church, have failed the Lord and been unfaithful in our representation of Christ to the world. Does our faithlessness nullify God's faithfulness? No, it does not. It does not. Let God be true and every man a liar. By no means does it nullify God's faithfulness. You might say, Pastor Tony, my my parents failed me when I was a kid. They failed me. They were hypocrites. Is God going to fail me? No, he will not. Pastor Tony, my church failed me. My church has failed me repeatedly. Does that mean that God's going to fail me? No. No. And that's what Paul's saying here in Romans 3. The Jews in the Old Testament failed. Does that mean that God has failed? Does that mean that God will fail? No. No, he won't. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let's keep going here. Write this down as number three. Here's another bad argument. Here's how it goes. If the gospel is true, then God is unjust for punishing man's unrighteousness. This is a bad argument. If the gospel is true, then God is unjust for punishing man's, argument, man's sorry, unrighteousness. Let's see how this is argued in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Parenthetical notation. I speak in a human way. It's almost, you know, Paul breaks character here. He's trying to argue on behalf of somebody else, but he's like, I just can't not say this. I speak like a dumb human when I say this. It's, it's amazing. Paul's so put off by arguing this way that he has to add that caveat at the end of the argument. And here's why the argument was so off-putting for Paul. Here's what he puts forth as the objection to the, the gospel. And keep in mind, I think Paul actually had to deal with this as he was traveling around and going to places and arguing for Christ in the synagogue. People said stuff like this. If our unrighteousness, the unrighteousness of the Jewish people, including David from the Old Testament, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, why would God be angry with us? If there's this, you know, this bold relief, man is sinful, God is holy. Man is unrighteous, God is righteous. You know, our sinfulness makes God look great. Perfect, righteous. If that's the case, why would God be angry? Why would he punish us for making him look good? In fact, the argument's more pointed than that. Paul says, if man's unrighteousness makes God's righteousness look good, then isn't God unrighteous to be angry with us and punish us? Paul says in response to that, again, absolutely not. Verse 6, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? In other words, we want God to judge the world. The Jews in the Old Testament wanted God to judge the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the, the, the Romans and the Greeks. We in our day want God to punish unrighteousness. Otherwise, Hitler and Stalin, they get off scot-free 
in eternity. Otherwise, murderers who never go to jail get away with evil. Otherwise, people like Jeffrey Epstein escape justice. We want God to judge. And so the gist of Paul's argument goes like this. Man's unrighteousness makes God look good. And God is right to punish man's unrighteousness, even though it makes God look good. God looks good when man's righteousness increases in comparison to his righteousness, and God looks good when he judges man's unrighteousness. Both of those things are true. Now, I explain that, but I'll I'll be honest with you. Let's just get practical here. I've never heard somebody argue this in my life. Nobody's ever come to me and said, well, you know, we should... God's wrong to be angry at us because our sin makes him look good. Maybe people do argue that. Nobody's ever argued that with me. But Paul was dealing with an issue that circulated in his day, possibly Jewish people that he was evangelizing. People don't say that in our day. People will say this. Tell me if you've heard this before. They'll say there is no God and there is no judgment. People will say, Maybe there is a God, but he's not going to punish sin. He's a God of love, and he wouldn't have judgment. Or people will say this. People say, if God exists, he's not a good God because he lets evil things happen in our world. You ever heard that before? If you haven't, you will. How are you going to argue against that? There's, there's, I mean, this is an argument that circulates in our day. It goes like this. And I want you to know how to refute this, okay? I want you to do like Paul. I want you to know how to refute this bad argument. Here's an argument that gets circulated all the time in our day. If God is all-powerful, he cannot be good. If God is good, he cannot be all-powerful. Y'all heard that before? I mean, it's so popular, it was in that, that dopey Batman versus Superman movie. Lex Luthor said that. And, you know, it's like, oh, that's brilliant. It's... Really? Really? Actually, it's an old, old argument that goes back to a philosopher and a skeptic named David Hume. Most modern Americans might not say it that way, but they would say something like this. This is a quote from Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. Tell me if you've heard something like this before. I just don't believe the God of Christianity exists, says Hillary, an undergrad English major, God allows terrible suffering in the world. So he might be either all-powerful but not good, not good enough to end evil and suffering, or else he might be all-good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. Or this. This isn't a philosophical issue to me, added Rob, Hillary's boyfriend. This is personal. I won't believe in a God who allows suffering even if he, she, or it exists. Maybe God exists, maybe not, but if he does, he can't be trusted. Or they might say something like this. This is on the screen. If a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil, but because there is much unjustifiable pointless evil in this world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. Is that something that people argue in our day? Sure it is. Sure it is. How do you respond to that? How do you answer that, Christian? 
Paul is showing us in Romans 3 how to battle bad arguments. How do we battle against that argument in our day? Do I have everybody's attention? Here's how you do it. I want you to hear this, okay? When I heard this for the first time a few years ago, it so enriched my soul. I was so thankful for it. I explored this issue while reading that book that I mentioned, Tim Keller's book, A Reason for God, and I can't tell you how much my soul was fed by this. So here's how you argue it, okay? Here's how you argue against it. In that premise, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. There is a hidden premise within that premise. Listen again. If a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. The hidden premise is this. If evil in this world appears pointless to me, it must be pointless, which is, of course, a fallacy. Just because I can't see it doesn't mean there's not a point to it. How do we know that evil is pointless? How do we know that God isn't allowing evil to occur, to occur now in order for a greater purpose to happen in the end? What if God was allowing evil in a moment in time in order to establish a more lasting good in the future? This is what theologians refer to as theodicy. In, in theological circles. It, why does God allow evil and suffering? Maybe he allows it to accomplish something greater in the end. Here's what C.S. Lewis argues. He says that suffering and evil in our world is actually better evidence that God exists than that God doesn't exist. And here's why he says this. This is Lewis speaking as he was still an atheist or talking about when he was still an atheist. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I come to that idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? Consequently, atheism turned out to be too simple. You know, Lewis recognized that modern objections to God are based on a sense of fair play and justice. But where does fair play and justice come from? Where do those categories come from? They didn't come from Darwinism, I'll tell you that much. They didn't come from evolutionary theory. In evolutionary theory, the strong eat the weak. This violence is perfectly natural. Doing evil is perfectly natural if you can get ahead. So it didn't come from that worldview. Where did it come from? Where did it come from? Tim Keller says it this way. The non-believer in God doesn't have a good basis for being outraged at injustice, which as C.S. Lewis points out, was the reason for objecting to God in the first place. Stay with me here. The Christian philosopher Alvin Plantiga, he says similarly, could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there was no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. There can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, are obliged to live. If you think there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, and it's not just an illusion of some sort, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. Here's how Plantinga illustrates this. He says, you know, if you go on a camping trip and you look in your pup tent for a St. Bernard and you don't see one, it's reasonable to assume there's no St. Bernard in the pup tent. That's logical. But if you look into your pup tent for a no-see-em. Y'all know what those are? 
little gnat creatures that bite and hurt. If you look inside of your pup tent and you don't see a no sim, it's unreasonable to assume, it's reasonable to assume that they're not there because after all, no one can see them, right? Many assume that if there were good reasons for the existence of evil, they would be accessible to our minds, more like St. Bernard's than like no sims. But why should that be the case? Why should our little minds understand what God is doing ultimately? Do you get it? Here, look, let me, let me simplify this. Jesus tells us the story about the wheat and the weeds, the parable. Do you all remember that parable? Great parable in Matthew 13. The farmer sows seed to grow wheat, but then his enemy, Satan, comes and sows weeds next to the wheat. And the wheat and the weeds, they grow up together. And the farmer's helpers come to him and say, do you want us to pull up the weeds? And the farmer says, no, let, let's wait for the harvest. I don't want you to damage our crop. Let's wait for the harvest. Then we will separate wheat from weeds. The wheat will store in our barns. The weeds will get burned. That's how God's going to settle the matter. The weeds represent the evil in the world, evil deeds, evil people. And Satan is the one who sowed evil into our world. And a bystander watching that in the middle before the harvest might say, what's wrong with that farmer? Why doesn't he go out there and take care of the weeds? He must be a bad farmer. Or likewise, they look out on the evil in our world and they say, why doesn't God do something about it? Why doesn't he do something good? He must not be good or he must not be all powerful. Neither of those assertions are true. God is all good. God is all powerful. He's allowing by grace time to lapse until judgment, until he settles everything. And in the end, he will mete out justice in proper measure. Do you get it? Think about Joseph in the Old Testament, just as another illustration. Think about how God allowed him to suffer greatly and unjustly. Joseph suffered. Why? Why didn't God stop it? God had a purpose for that. God had a purpose for that suffering. And over time, Joseph actually moved up in Egypt and he was able, as a result of that suffering and the things that he went through, to save his lousy brothers who sold him into slavery. He saved them. And he saved his father and he saved his family. And he was used by God to save the promises of God for his family. In the middle of that, you might say, God is unjust. At the end of it, you say, no, God knew what he was doing. God understood. And there was a people there was a reason for that, a purpose for that suffering and that evil. What's the best example of this? Did Jesus have to endure suffering and injustice? Did Jesus have to suffer injustice? What if in the middle of that, God said, enough, enough. I'm not going to allow this evil to continue. And he stopped it. You, my friends, would be condemned to hell for eternity if God the Father had done that with his son. So what's the point of all this? Sometimes an all-powerful, all-good God allows evil and suffering for his better purposes. You've got to know that. I'm sorry, but, but Lex Luthor's argument is bad. I know that doesn't surprise anybody in this room. It's Lex Luthor. It's not Martin Luther, okay? If God is all-powerful, he, can, he cannot go, do good. If God is good, he cannot be all-powerful. That argument doesn't work. 
I've just given you a summary of that here. If you want to learn more about that or study that more, read that book. Read Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. Or you can read, I just finished a book earlier this year by Rebecca McLaughlin. She covers that in her book, Confronting Christianity. Those are excellent resources that deal with bad arguments that circulate in our modern world. Speaking of bad arguments, here's one more that Paul addresses. And I'll just tell you that this argument could be just as deceptive today as it was when Paul, Paul first dealt with it 2,000 years ago. Here's the bad argument. Write this down. If the gospel is true, then God gets more glory when man is more sinful. Out of the four bad arguments that Paul addresses here, this is the one that's easiest to understand, I think. It's also the most cunning. If God looks glorious when I sin, I'm just going to sin like crazy. God's going to look glorious. I get to sin. Everybody wins. Here's how Paul says it. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? This harks back to verse 4, let God be true and every man a liar. Paul said there that God is faithful even when we are faithless. God looks good when we look bad, so why not just be bad and look bad so that God looks gooder? That's the argument. (laughs) Verse 8, and why not do evil that good may come? Uh, Some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. What's funny about this last argument is that Paul doesn't even take the time to refute it. He he just says, you're condemned if you ask this stupid question, basically. Their condemnation is just. But Paul does say some people are slanderously charging us with saying this, and I can understand why that slander circulated. Paul's going into different synagogues, and he says to them, you know, the law doesn't save you. Your circumcision doesn't save you. You can't be good enough to save yourself. You need Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins. If he was going around saying that in synagogues, I can imagine that people would object to Paul's gospel saying, so what you're saying is it doesn't matter how much I sin. You don't care about sin. I can sin as much as I want. I just need to trust in this guy, Jesus, and it covers all over all of that. So why not just sin? Why not just sin like crazy? Sin more and more and more. And Paul says, no, that's not how it works. He says this later in Romans. That's not how the gospel works. God makes us holy before God by faith, And that makes us desirous to live a life of holiness for him. Is that true? We are holy and holy before God. We need his grace. We receive that grace. And then, wouldn't you know it? Now I want holiness. Now I want to be like Jesus. You know why that happens? Because there's this thing, this person, God the Holy Spirit, who comes into you and says, you can't do that anymore. You can't live like this anymore. And I'm going to give you the power to do what you couldn't do without me. The Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit helps us to live lives that are increasingly righteous and increasingly pleasing before our holy God. Here's how this argument circulates, the bad argument circulates in our day. Here's what I actually heard people say when I was a kid, okay? Just pray a prayer. Just say you believe. Just confess Christ as your Savior. And after you do that, it doesn't matter what you do after that. You can live any way you want. You got fire insurance in your back pocket. You're good before God, and God has to save you if you do that. 
These kinds of things really were told me to me. That, my friends, is not consistent with the gospel that God preaches, that Paul preaches. In fact, that's not consistent with the New Testament. Nobody who reads 1 John would think that. Nobody who reads James, the book of James, would think that. When we get saved, this is really, really important. Is everybody listening? When we get saved, we are made aware of how sinful we are and how glorious God is. And God gets glory by us saying, I'm a sinner who needs salvation from Jesus. God gets glory from that. And we repent of our sins. We turn away from our sins. We embrace Jesus Christ by faith. But then we start a life lived in obedience to him. We start a life lived of allegiance to him. And we glorify God, yes, by embracing the grace that he gives, but we also glorify God by living in step with him, being Christ-like in our holiness, being Christ-like in our love for people, by imitating the Christ that saved us from our sins. Is everybody with me? That is so important. And that's the gospel that Paul preaches. A life of holiness that has been saved by grace and is committed with the help of the Holy Spirit to live in obedience to God, that is glorious to God. That gives him glory. God is glorified in that. And just so you know, that's what we're going for as a church. I'm not here preaching fire insurance, okay? There's probably another place you can go for that. What I desire, and what I think the New Testament teaches, saved followers of Jesus that are growing in their Christ-likeness. It's called discipleship. We're here to make disciples, not just converts. That's what God has called us to do. That's what, that's what we're going for as a church. As a result of the grace that God has given us, we strive to live lives of obedience to Jesus. Amen? How's that going, Harvest Decatur? Seriously. You might say, I'm saved by the blood of Jesus, Pastor Tony. Good. Me too. Are you growing as a disciple? Are you growing in holiness? Are you growing in your love and your commitment to the Lord? You should be. You should be. Not perfectly, but increasingly. As the Holy Spirit inside of you is guiding you. And by the way, you should be growing too in your ability to identify and defeat bad arguments that circulate in this world. How's that going? I'll close with this and then we'll take communion. Do you know what the best argument for Jesus Christ is? We're defeating bad arguments here, but we want to put forth some good arguments too. Do you know what the best argument for Jesus Christ in our world is? Do you know what the, the best argument for Jesus is in your family, in your community, with your kids, with your unsaved neighbors? you know what the best argument is? I, th I think you know what I'm getting at here. I mean, you can, you can have rock-solid argumentation against the bad ideas of this world. 
I hope you do. You know what's even better than that? A life well lived. A life committed to Christ. A life growing in holiness, growing in love for others, growing in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Do Christians who fail Jesus make the gospel fail? No. Do Christians who live for Jesus, follow Jesus, and imitate Jesus draw unbelievers to him? Yeah, they do. And that's what we're going for as a church. Let's go for that. Let's do that.